0: and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Our uh, speaker tonight is the the first layman to receive both his licentiate and doctoral degrees in ascetical and mystical theology from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas, the Angelicum in Rome. Uh, He has taught at St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, and at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. He is a Knight Grand Cross in the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, and he is a consultant to the Pontifical Council for the Family. Additionally, he has written a number of books, one of which he has for sale in the back, Swords Around the Cross, The Nine Years War, on our subject this evening. So make sure you pick up a copy. I'm sure Dr. O'Donnell will be happy to sign it for you, and, uh, and you can read the whole thing between now and then
2: plus they get to talk to my daughter which is plus they get to talk cross- to his
1: daughter it's that's, that's very nice <laughs> thank you um, more importantly than that he is also the, the president of christendom college uh... the college from which i graduated very thankful for the education i received there i i counted up among one of the greatest blessings of my life to have been able to attend that college for four years um... and uh... so please welcome dr timothy o'donnell
2: All right. Great. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you very much, Sabatino. It's always great to be here with you all. Do you mind if I take my coat off? Is that okay? All right. I've been in. I've been in Ireland. <laughs> actually, just got back from Ireland. Uh, three-week study abroad program. Some of the folks who are with us are actually here tonight. They survived. And. Uh, just got back from my son, Hugh, who is married out in California. So I really don't know what time it is. We just sort of went from European time to California time. And I think California time's a lot worse because your mother-in-law has her intention to keep you up till at least midnight, which is like three in the morning for us. So I don't know what time it is. So I apologize if the talk is not totally coherent, but we'll give it our best shot. All of you hopefully have received this. So I don't want anyone to go home thinking they don't have a prayer. You've got a great prayer, Patrick's Lorica, Latin term meaning the breastplate. It's a protective prayer. If you're not familiar with it, it reveals a great deal about Patrick's spirituality. And it's a beautiful prayer to say uh, when you are rising, and it tells us a lot about Patrick. In addition, on the next page you have principal Irish monastic foundations that are found in Ireland, and also in Scotland, Wales, and England. Then you have principal churches and monasteries found just within Ireland. Then on the next page, you have sort of the shaded area of Europe, which was the theater of Irish missionary expansion, basically from the 6th up to the 11th century. You have a small model of what an Irish monastery, a very early primitive Irish monastery, would have looked like. And then on the back page, you have something that drove the Elizabethans bonkers. That's what Ireland looked like, divided into all these lordships and principalities in the 16th century. And we'll be talking about that. So it's sort of interesting. The, the original thing was to talk about the war, the Nine Years' War. So it's sort of funny, but I guess, you know, anyone who is part of the Pontifical Council of the Family talks about marriage, so we know something about war, right? Right. Oh, gosh, here we go. Sorry, sorry. There is Guinness back there if you want to kind of limp along with this, so please help you. Thank you, Sabatina, for that touch. That was really wonderful to have that black gold. All right. Now, what I'd like to do this evening, before I get into the war itself, which should be better known, and it's important to talk about those sort of things. I mean, we do have saints like Anthony of the Desert, but we also have Joan of Arc, right? The Emperor Henry II. We have St. Louis the Crusader King. So it's important to reflect upon certain elements of the tradition that might be a bit neglected. But before I get into the war, that's my sort of goal, I would like to very much lay a foundation by talking to you about the birth and growth of the church in Ireland from a mere outpost on the fringe of Europe to to becoming a center of Christian piety and learning that would one day send forth her sons to re-Christianize a continent. And it's a phenomenon well worth investigating. It tends to be neglected. And there's a number of reasons why it tends to be neglected. Many of the early Irish monastic foundations in northern Europe eventually were displaced by Benedictine monasteries. And when they took over and adapted the Benedictine rule, they tended to ignore the Columban rule and downplayed the foundation. That's one of the reasons why abbeys such as Saint-Gaul, Luxeuil in France, many of these places were all Irish foundations, followed the rule of Columban for many years. Eventually, it was replaced by the Benedictine rule because the Benedictine rule was closer to Rome and it was more mild and it allowed you to drink wine, all right? And it was better for that type of temperament, all right? Whereas the Irish were very strict, very strict, fiercely ascetical as we will see. Uh, But we have to even place that in context because a lot of times people read about their ascetical practices and it seems almost suicidal, you know, spending Lent in the woods with a few loaves of bread living on rainwater, that's crazy. But imagine if you lived in a country where you basically had one meal a day, that's all. What do you do when Lent comes? (laughs) (laughs) No, but you, you see my point, you see my point. If you want to live an ascetic life and give something up to the Lord, it's going to have to be a lot more than one meal a day. Does that make sense? So a lot of times you'll get secular people to be writing about this and say, oh, it's suicidal, it's crazy, it's ridiculous. Most of the poor people had one meal a day. It was a good meal, but that's all they had. So if you wanted to give something back to the Lord, you'd have to do something more dramatic than that. All right. So that's important. Also because it's the Dark Ages, the collapse of the Roman Empire. And there was much about that time period that was dark, but it wasn't all dark. And not all of the countries equally shared in the chaos that followed from the collapse of the Roman Empire. One of the countries that did not was Hibernia, the ancient name for Ireland. It was not part of the Roman Empire. So when the Roman legions were withdrawn from Britain, not England, because England didn't exist, it was Britain. You remember that, right? The Romans pulled out, and you had all these Angles and Saxon pagans invading. Remember, it was the Celts who were the Christians. You've got to remember this. It's very, very different. King Arthur, all the legends of King Arthur. Arthur was a Romano-Celtic prince. You're aware of that, right? Have You ever seen the flag of Wales? The red dragon on the gold banner? That's Arthur Pendragon. He, who was he fighting? He was fighting the pagan Angles and Saxons. And, of course, there was a whole mythology and legend that dwelt, built up around that. But if we look at this phenomenon, it certainly appears miraculous where you look what these monks were able to achieve, the places that they went to. There's even a growing amount of evidence that indicates one of the monks, Brendan the Navigator, actually sailed to Newfoundland and actually made it here to North America. As a matter of fact, there was an article just recently came out in West Virginia that they found one of these great stones in West Virginia. It takes about eight hours to get there, though. You have to park the car and walk four hours into the park. But there is a magnificent stone, and a professor has identified it as Ogham script, which was used in 6th century Ireland. And they don't know how it got there, but this stone directly behind the sun actually rises up. And the inscription has been translated, On this day, the son of the virgin has been born. And on December 25th, when the sun comes up, it shines directly on the Ogham script. It's an amazing thing. If you have a chance to go, maybe we should organize a trip. Almost heaven. All right. (laughs) Emphasizing almost. All right. (laughs) I love Virginia. All right. So, what do we want to talk about tonight? The church in Ireland really starts in a big way with the Apostle Patrick. And you get the rise of these large monasteries that became great centers of schools and ecclesiastical learning during the Dark Ages. And we want to look at some, some of those monasteries. And some of the great men that came out of those monasteries. Just for sure, sh- how many of you have ever heard of a saint called St. Columkill? Oh, this is an Irish crowd. (laughs) Now I can really get tricky. How many of you have heard of St. Columba? Same guy. All right. (laughs) Columbile in the Irish just means dove of the church. Columba simply would be the Latin form of his name, meaning the dove. How many have heard of Columbanus? The Columban fathers, Columbanus, established a very famous monastery in northern Italy called Bobbio, which was a great center at the time of the Renaissance. Do you ever notice how many Italians are named Columbo... Columbus, all right, Columba, it's all because of Columbanus up in Babio. It's a northern Italian name. Beautiful monastery. It was eventually taken over by the Benedictines, but Columbanus' body there, his tomb there, and they inscribed in Latin, St. Sanctus Columbanus, true disciple of St. Benedict. That's what they put on it. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure he was. I'm sure they're happy together drinking Guinness in heaven right now. It's a poem composed by St. Bridget called, I long to be in heaven in the palace of the great king with a great vat of beer. I mean, that's what she said in her poem. (laughs) Anyway, I know it's a barbarian beverage. The Italians here, I'm with you on the wine. Wine is a great way to go. Is this being recorded? (laughs) We want an edited version of this. I I, want to make sure. But you also had men like St. Aidan. Anyone ever heard of St. Aidan at Lindisfarne? Gosh, you are not far from the kingdom. All right, this is great. So you do know about these things. But these people took the message of Christ and evangelized Britain, Gaul, Switzerland. They penetrated into Poland. John Paul II gave a glowing tribute to the Irish missionary effort in Poland. As far as Russia, they entered into Kiev. There was an Irish monastery in Kiev during this time called the Dark Ages. And it's interesting to note that Some of the finest scholars who have delved into this period are not Irish scholars at all. They're scholars on the continent who have done a lot of work in the monasteries. They're mostly German and Swiss and French, with some Belgian. There was a great book. It's out of print. You might want to try to get it if you can. It was edited by Henri Daniel Ropes, the great Catholic historian. You're probably familiar with him. But the name of the book was called The Miracle of Ireland. And he talked, and what he did, he assembled German, French, Belgian, and Swiss scholars, and they all wrote about this time period and what an incredible time it was in the history of the church. And I'd like to give you a brief quote from Henri Daniel Ropes, if you will allow me to do that. This is what Daniel Ropes says about the period we're going to be talking about this evening Yes, the history of this Celtic Christianity is astonishing and picturesque, bathed in poetry and mystery. Battered by high winds and the spray of the sea, from those northern mists which arise from the cold seas, legends arise with the spontaneity of a dream. But from them there emerge many personalities with strange outlines, perfectly genuine, but with wondrous destinies. This is a history which is not always met with the notice it deserves, but anyone who studies it fairly will find it is of capital importance." The Irish miracle, as we like to call it, is this second setting out of Christianity from a country which had only just been baptized and which was immediately dreaming of giving Christ back to the world. Ireland, between the 5th and the 8th century, was like a second Palestine. Incredible. Was like a second Palestine, like a new cradle of the Christian faith. It seemed necessary to pay homage to this work and here it is. That's from the introduction that he wrote to the work The Miracle of Ireland. You could probably get it on Amazon if you Google it. You could probably get a used copy. Phenomenal work. But before we get into all of that, we need to spend some time talking about the great figure, Patrick. We have to talk about Patrick. And I always love St. Patrick's Day, but I always get a little depressed because there's so many stupid things that are done on St. Patrick's Day. You have one of the great ascetic saints in the history of the church and people get drunk or they dye the river green. I don't mind green water, but, you know, you know, think about who this man is. In Ireland, it's a holy day of obligation. Poor Ireland is really slipping. You have to keep Ireland in in your prayers. Every three years we go over there and every three years it seems a step down, step down. They're going through a horrible time right now, but please keep them in your prayers. But truly, Patrick, a remarkable, remarkable man. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 to 2, there's a quote referring to Abraham. And I'd just like to listen to what the scripture says about Abraham as being a patriarch, because I think it applies to Patrick. And the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth out of your country, and from your kindred, and out of your father's house, and come into the land which I shall show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and magnify your name, and you shall be blessed." That's what the Lord said to Abraham. You know what? He said the same thing to young Patrick. Let's talk a little bit about him. What are his dates? First of all, we believe he was born in the year 387, for those of you who like taking notes. And he died in the year 461. And he's not a myth. He's not an invention. He composed prayers. He even left us his confession. Everyone, if you want to know the real Patrick, sit down and prayerfully read the confession. You will find a man seized, I mean seized with the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't an abstraction to him. He was a real person. He was his Lord, his Savior, his Master. And he was a disciple of the Lord. As a youth, he tells us, he led a very sort of mediocre life. He wasn't that attentive to the practice of his religion, and he said he was basically a mediocre Christian. But what happened, as Rome pulled her legions back, his father was a petty official in the Roman Empire, probably in Wales or Britain. Some scholars will say, no, it was in Brittany in France. And you can argue back and forth. I think it's probably more likely he was right across the Irish Sea in Wales. But what happened when Rome went through their legions, an Irish king called Nile of the Nine Hostages and the Celtic Sea thundered with Irish oars, went on raiding missions and he attacked Patrick's village and actually seized Patrick as a young boy, dragged him away from his family. Family probably thought he was dead. They were never going to see him again. And he was carried off as a slave and was sold as a slave in Ireland. And he was taken way up to the northern part of the country to a little hill called Slemish. And on there, he used to tend sheep as a slave. And the beautiful thing, if you go to Ireland to this day, up in the glens of Antrim, that hill is still there, and you know what's on it to this very day? Sheep grazing. It hasn't been touched. So it's very easy to go there and look about and imagine Patrick tending sheep. Now, some of you, I'm sure most of you have been away from home for a long time. Yes? Boy, you're you're God's frozen people tonight. We've got to wake you up. All right. A lot of times when you're away from home and you're out of your routine, you tend to pray a little more. Isn't that true? If things aren't going right, you tend to pray a little more. Things are going well. Hi, Jesus. Thank you. Uh, And you just keep going. When things aren't going well, you pray a little more. Well, he was taken away from everything, everything he knew, his family. He's treated as a slave, sent to herd sheep on the hill. And what happens? He has a conversion, what we would call the second conversion. What our Protestant brothers and sisters say, it's that moment when you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. We all go through a second conversion, right? Even if you're born and raised Catholic, there comes a point where you say, I believe this. Thank you, Mom and Dad, but I believe this, all right? So this is what he goes through. And he writes so beautifully, and if this does nothing else but get you to want to read his confession, listen to what he says. Now, after I had arrived in Ireland, tending flocks was my daily occupation, and constantly I used to pray in the daytime. Love of God and the fear of Him increased more and more in my heart, and faith grew, and the Spirit was roused, so that in one day I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and at night nearly as many. Even while I was out in the woods and on the mountainside, before daybreak, I used to be roused to prayer, and I felt no hurt. Whether there was snow, frost, or rain, nor was there any sluggishness in me. See that fervor of the first conversion? He's praying all the time, even at the night, I muse upon you. He's getting up before dawn, praying all the time. Now, isn't that interesting? It tells you something about Patrick and his response to grace. When you are taken away from your family with violence, and you're enslaved by a people, it would be very easy to become bitter. Bitter. To hate the people that were treating you that way. But that's not what happens. The mystery of the human free will. He ends up responding with prayer. He spends six years as a slave outdoors on that mountain tending sheep. Then he has one of those intense dreams. You ever have those dreams where they're so intense they linger on into the day? You ever had that? You know, it's sort of like it, it just stays with you. It's just so powerful and intense. My wife has those periodically, she hits me in the morning. You were so mean to me in the dream. (laughs) I didn't do anything. Yes, but yeah, you were so mean in the dream. Just to you. You ever had a dream like that? Well, he has a dream like that where it says, get up, leave, and go out, and you will find your freedom. So he gets up, he sees a road, and he just starts walking down the road. He escapes. He's a runaway slave. The road goes 200 miles. The voice said, go, then you'll find a ship. They'll take you back to your family. He walks for 200 miles, comes down to what is modern-day Wexford, and guess what's there waiting for him? A ship. Comes up to the captain and says, God told me that you would be taking me back to my family. And I'm to be on your boat. And the captain said, get lost. <laughs> some of the sailors hear this, and God said, take him. And they've got a shipment of Irish wolfhounds they're taking to the continent. And so they go up to the captain and say, if some god has spoken to him, maybe you should take him. All right. And so the captain ends up relenting, and he gets put on board the ship. It's a three-day voyage, and eventually, after a series of adventures, he gets back to his family, and he's restored to his family. Family hasn't seen him in six years, probably thought he was dead. Now you can imagine what a reunion that would have been, with brothers, sisters, mom and dad, everyone getting together. The return of the, the unwilling prodigal son, who comes back. And so you would think that would be the end of the story. He's back home very happy, but he's restless. And one night he has another one of these intense dreams where he says the Lord speaks to him, in the dream. And what he sees is on the Western Sea, there's this beautiful folk at wood, and he sees all these young Irish people coming out and then one man opens a letter and says, come back to us, O holy noble youth, walk among us. And in the confession, he says, he was so feelingly touched, so deeply moved that he just woke up. And then he decided that he was going to go back and bring Christ to that pagan nation that's what he decided to do, which at that time was a pagan, war-loving nation. As Chesterton wrote about the Gales of Ireland, the great Gales of Ireland got alone made mad, for all their wars are merry and all their songs are sad. All right, yeah, having a war, that's a great way. We will get to the war eventually. All right, so he then embarks on an incredible trip. We don't know everywhere he went. He wants to form himself for this mission. He goes to St. Martin's Monastery at Tours. He goes down to the island of Larens off the coast of France where there's a monastery with St. Honoratus and he learns about the monastic life, vows of poverty, chastity, obedience. Then eventually he goes to Auxerre and studies under the great St. Germanus and imbibes the whole teaching of the church and tries to educate himself uh, in the teaching of the church. And then eventually he will be ordained. And then his great dream is to go and lead an apostolic mission. Pope Celestine in Rome wants to send an apostolic mission. And we know that there were some Christians in Ireland because there had been contact with Spain and France and certain other Christian countries at that time. And so there came a time when there was sort of an examination. If you were selected, you were gonna be ordained a bishop, you had to go before a board. And then they would investigate you. And then if everything went according to plan, you would be ordained, consecrated, and would be sent off on the mission. Well, within Celtic spirituality, one of the traditions they have is the Anamkara, the soulmate. Uh, very, something very deep within Celtic spirituality where every person needs a soulmate. We call that marriage. All right? But within Celtic Christianity, it didn't have to be a spouse. It could be a very dear friend. It could be male, it could be female. But it was someone you shared everything with in your spiritual life. And you would strengthen one another by your conversation and by the mutual love. Even confessional matters, you know, I'm struggling with this particular temptation. Patrick had one of those, was absolutely horrible. He's called up, remember he's been preparing for decades now for this mission. The Pope has said we need to send someone to Ireland. He comes forward to St. Germanus and he's brought forward for this examination. His Anamkara, his dearest friend, Stands up in front of all of the other bishops who were present and reveals something that Patrick told them, a sin that he had committed in his adolescence. We don't know what the sin was, but he manifests this in front of everybody. And they look at them and they say, I'm sorry, we can't send you. Imagine, you've been working 30 years for this. And your best friend reveals something that you told him in confidence as your soulmate reveals this. And in the Confessions, it's painful reading. He says, on that day I was thrusted and sorely shaken that I should fall and never rise again. So he is rejected. And they select another man by the name of Palladius, who is made bishop. And Palladius is sent off on a mission ad scotus Christi credente, to the Scots believing in Christ. But it has a happy ending because Palladius gets killed within a year. (laughs) We went to see Jesus. It's okay. He's a martyr. He gets killed. And so they go back and revisit. And this time, Patrick is selected. He's consecrated a bishop and with a number of priests, he sets off for Ireland. Now again, pagan country, war-loving country. If he was born in a Celtic region, which he probably was, he would have had a sense of the language. He would have picked up some of the language uh, while he was in Ireland for those six years. So he comes back and the first thing he lands just a little bit north of Dublin and he goes walking and some chieftain sits his dogs on him, but the dogs back off. And he comes up and says, who are you? And Patrick tells he's coming to bring Christ to the people of Ireland. The man's very impressed. Of course, there's no churches in Ireland, so he says, why don't you celebrate Mass in my barn? And so he goes, and the first Mass offered in Ireland that we know of by Patrick is in, the, in a barn. It's called Saul, Saul Padraig. To this day, the little town where Patrick first celebrated his Mass was right there. He then has one great desire, to bring the man who enslaved him the light of Christ. So he goes right back up to Antrim. News spreads, the chief hears that his former slave is coming, he doesn't want to have anything to do with them, so typical crazy insane Irish. He lights his house on fire as Patrick approaches and says, I will never listen to you, I have nothing to say, and he goes back into his burning house and commits suicide. Now can you imagine, you've been training for decades, coming back, he's still alive, you come back and that's how your pastoral ministry starts? pack up and go home, forget it, you know, but that's not what he does. Very dramatic scene in the life of Patrick. He goes up to the hill of Slain, which overlooks Tara. Tara was the residence of the High King. The High King at this time, his name is Leary, And the Druids worship the elements, earth, wind, fire, and air, sacred groves, things like that. And they had a special fire that was lit by the Druids and only the High King's fire was to be lit. This was at Easter time. You've all been to Easter vigil, right? So you know what you do if you're preparing for an Easter service, right? So Patrick goes up on Slain Hill. We were just there a couple weeks ago. And we did the, we'd prayed the Lorica prayer. And you're looking down at Tara. And he lights this enormous Easter fire. And then the king says, who dares to do that? And some druid prophesies, if that fire is not put out, it will spread every to every corner of this island. And you will lose your authority. So they sent up troops to get him. Patrick eluded them. But what does he do? He goes right down to the king's palace and walks in. Very impressed with this mitred bishop who comes and has a commanding presence, speaking Latin but also knowing something of the Irish tongue. And he says he has come on a mission of peace to proclaim Jesus Christ. The king is so impressed, he gives him permission and his protection to preach anywhere he wants throughout the island, enjoying the Ardri, the high king's protection. And this begins his great mission. Two of the king's daughters convert that night are baptized, one of the king's son. The king himself never became a Christian, but members of the family did. And so this began his great mission uh, to Ireland. And of course, he labors in that nation for three decades, baptizing, confirming, establishing churches, ordaining clergy. After the first 10 years, bishops from Gaul travel over, Segundius and other ones, and they too assist in the great work of evangelization. Patrick was a phenomenal preacher. In the history of evangelization, it is almost without precedent because in three decades, he converted the entire nation with no bloodshed. There is no bloodshed. Amazing. The blood will come later with the Vikings and then with another invader. All right. But there was no bloodshed. An amazing tribute to his power of preaching and his aesthetical discipline. Two spots I'll share with you this evening. By the way, how long do I get to go, Sabatino? 25, no, no, no. <coughs> huh, geez, we're not gonna get to the war. We'll do our best. All right, so what does he do? He climbs up with a few loaves of bread and a little bell and he tells everyone, I'm climbing up a mountain, Cropatric, which was sacred to the Celtic gods. <coughs> And he just goes up there and spends an entire Lent on the top of this mountain. Now, it's a spectacular mountain with a view of Clue Bay. You can see the 12 bins, view of the Atlantic Ocean. But it's barren, and it's exposed to the elements. And he goes up there, and he spends his entire Lent with a few loaves of bread. If you climb up to the top of the there's a little hollowed area called Patrick's Bed where he would lay on flat stones to be out of the wind, exposed to the rain and everything. People can't believe that he would survive. But then when Easter comes, he starts walking down the hill and he starts ringing his bell. And all the faithful gather to him, my gosh, he's alive. Yes, I am alive and Jesus Christ is alive and it's through the power of Jesus Christ that I am with you today. And the people submit to baptism. And on that mountain, he prays fervently for the conversion of the people of Ireland. He was a fierce ascetic. He would spend a number of Lent's in these very remote places and the ringing of that bell. Probably the only real relic that survived. Can I tell you a little story, a little side? That bell is put in a beautiful reliquary box, which is in the National Museum of Ireland. And when Ireland finally gained its independence, in 1932, the Pope had the Eucharistic Congress in Dublin in 1932. And one of the great moments, and people will never forget, there were a million people gathered in Phoenix Park for the mass. And the papal nuncio was there. And when it came time for the elevation, they had a little microphone. And they took Patrick's bell out. 1,500 they rang Patrick's bell. You know what Patrick was saying? He is here. My Lord is here, so the dead can speak. And he spoke that day. Great moment. 2012, Pope Benedict has selected Dublin for Eucharistic Congress. I'm going to go, and they better do it again. <laughs> I'm going to be really upset. Anyway, great moment. He also went off to a remote area in County Donegal, Loch Derg, where he spent an entire Lent fasting and reporting, according to the tradition, in a cave where he had visions of heaven, hell, and purgatory. It became a very famous pilgrimage spot that eventually inspired a guy named Dante to write a story about a journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven. Very well known in the Middle Ages. How many of you have ever heard of Patrick's Purgatory, Loch Derg? Okay, a few of you have. I did it with my son, Hugh, in 99. One of the few real pilgrimages left today where you take your shoes off, you go barefoot, you fast from sleep for 24 hours, you have nothing but bread and water. It's, it's tough. But it's beautiful, it's a great thing to do, but that sense of asceticism. Frank Duff, the founder of Legion of Mary, did it every single year to his eighty. Then his doctor said, You can't do it anymore. He died right after that, but maybe he should have kept it up. But an amazing, amazing thing. What an incredible holy man. He this is why you have to understand no one has left so strong a permanent impression of his personality on a people than Patrick. That's why the Irish love him and have such an intense devotion to him. You'd have to go to Moses. Like what Moses is to our Hebrew brothers and sisters, that's what Patrick is to the Irish. And the spirituality that he bequeathed, incredible. And that's why we can speak of Patrick as being a patriarch. He is the founder of the people. Why he gave the Catholic faith to the people of Ireland. He gave it to them. He was their religious leader. He had such an intense love of Christ and his humility. I'm always amazed when I read scholars giving their commentaries on his confessions. You know, rather crude Latin, he says he was a, rather rustic in his presentation. The man's phenomenally humble. I'd like to see some people today write Latin the way he wrote Latin. But of course, one of the best things you can see when a person's talking about that they're a sinner and that they've received everything from the Lord, when you really show that kind of humility, If you're reading with the proper spiritual attentiveness, you're going to understand what he's saying. You're not going to put him down or say he's a rustic. You're going to recognize spiritual greatness there because humility is so essential. Man of prayer, man of asceticism, a man who was willing to die for Christ. In his confession at the end, he says, I hope that God will give me the gift that I will shed my blood for him in this land. He was willing to die. And when you read that, you realize what an incredible apostle. If you're Irish and you read this guy had such a love for us, it wasn't anything in the Irish that was lovable, right? Come on, you know what I mean. It's that God loves us, that's what makes us lovable. But he loves us, even when we were in our sins, he still loved us and poured himself out for us. Patrick was like Jesus and he imitated the master. And like all great saints, a saint is someone who makes Christ lovable. And that's what Patrick did for the Irish. He made Christ lovable. They saw it in his preaching, in his care, and in his concern. And this led to a phenomenal transformation. Now, what is so amazing is that the roots that Patrick struck, struck so deep that within a very short period of time, there were monasteries springing up all over Ireland. Now, Ireland developed a little different from the rest of Western Christianity. For example, most of Western Christianity, you had bishops and the bishops always resided where? In the city, they had their catheter, the cathedral in the city. Of course, there were bishops in Ireland, but Ireland had no cities. There were kingdoms, but it was essentially a rural area. So wherever the bishop would live, You did a little bit with St. Augustine, right? How Augustine would gather priests around him and live a community life. The bishops began to do it. So what eventually happened, there was a transformation in the Irish church where the monasteries became the great centers of ecclesiastical life. Bishops oftentimes would reside there. They had their sacramental function. They were successor to the apostles. But a lot of times the most powerful figures in the church were the abbots. And you can see this in the literature that was produced in Ireland at this time. When they refer to the pope, you know what they call him? The abbot of Rome. You know what they call the devil? The abbot of hell. (laughs) But this was something that really transformed the church, essentially because of its rural nature. But these became great centers of culture and of literature. I brought a sample here. Some of you might want to come up and browse a reproduction. We were just looking at the book of Kells just a few days ago, and about a week ago. And this is a reproduction of that book, which is just exquisitely beautiful. I don't know if you've ever tried, how many of you have ever tried calligraphy? But um, the work of this book, I'm just going to show you like one, a couple of pages here. Look at that. That's the, that's the title page to St. John's Gospel. Can you see that? I mean, if you've ever done calligraphy, they're not really sure how they were able to do all of that. Let me go down the central aisle. Some of it they take need magnifying glasses to look at the incredible detail. But talk about a people that love the Word. And on this title page you have, in principio erat verbum, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, but there was a deep and abiding love and reverence for the Word of God. But books like this were very, very common. They were used for liturgical purposes, for spiritual reading. That's the great book of Kells. I'll leave it up here. Feel free uh, when we're done uh, to go ahead and thumb through it if you'd like to take a look. But eventually you had Irish monasteries all over Ireland. and The map will show you the primary places, but then there began this great missionary outreach. Columba, the great Columba, sailed to Iona, the island of Iona, and evangelized the northern Picts. The first reference, by the way, that we have to the Loch Ness monster. One of his monks fell into Loch Ness, and it said this great sea creature came up to devour, and Columba did an exorcism. The thing dove under the water. Kind of interesting. Anyway, I'm not saying I believe in the thing, but I'm just saying it is in the story. But Columba ends up evangelizing the Picts. Aidan travels down and establishes his beautiful monastery at Lindisfarne and begins the evangelization of Northumbria and most of England. Columbanus, with 12 companions, sets off for France. And they looked different, and they made an impression. They were tonsured, but they had a Celtic tonsure, not the Roman tonsure. Roman tonsure looks like the back of my head if you can see that, all right? They would shave the crown. Celtic tonsure, they cut the front of the head and allowed the hair to grow long in the back, so they would shave the front for their tonsure. Also, when they were on pilgrimage, you ever see Braveheart? You know the Wotan, the blue paint? They would put blue paint on their eyelids, and they would walk in proclaiming Christ, and it's like, who are those guys? But they were very good with the spade, they were very good with farming, very good with agriculture, very good with animals, milking, and they taught the people farming and people would flock to them. And then eventually this way of life, embracing Christianity, entering into the monastery, these monasteries became very flourishing centers all over Europe. You ever heard of St. Fiacre? patron saint of gardening with his spade, you know, the, the French cats, Fiacre. Okay. All over Europe, they spread this great culture at a time when there was real darkness and real chaos. But the re-establishment of Christianity in Europe after the collapse of the Roman Empire was essentially the work of these monks. Even St. Bede, in his ecclesiastical history of the English people, Look in the index, look at the number of times he talks about the Irish monks and all that they did. All right? They sometimes got into trouble because of the tonsure. They kept the old date for Easter, which sometimes got them into conflict. But it was always questions of discipline. Does that make sense? Never orthodoxy, never a creedal problem. Columbanus writing to Gregory the Great said, We are the disciples of Peter and Paul, and heretic has never been known among us. They prided themselves on their orthodoxy. And so much of this is really a tribute to St. Patrick and to what he had actually achieved. Now, I see I just got the 15-minute sign, so what I think I might do, talk a little bit about the things that seem to be characteristic of Irish spirituality. Does that sound okay? And then we'll move on to what we can as far as the war. All right. Certain things that seem to capture Celtic spirituality. Now it's not separate from other spiritualities, but sir every spirituality has a certain emphasis, right? Franciscans have a certain love of poverty. Dominicans have a tense devotion to the word, right? You get Benedictines, the community life. Jesuits. <laughs> devotion to the sacred heart. Okay, I'm gonna be good. <laughs> I met one yesterday, he believed in God, it was great. Um, <laughs> That's oh come on! If you don't have a sense of humor, please have a Guinness, and you'll find one. I went to a Jesuit school, so I feel like I, I can I can get away with that. But I love the Dominicans. All right, what are some of the things that characterize it? A real love of creation, love of creation. That's why so many of the Irish saints are poets. It's why when you go to Ireland and you just look at the landscape, it seems to have come untouched by the Creator. I remember the first time I brought my wife there. Uh, in 76, and these people let us have their little house, and they had a great reading room with a beautiful window, tufted leather chairs, great library, and overlooking a lake. And we all went and we picked out a book we thought we liked. like. To. We sat down in the chair, and then we just looked out the window, and we never read. Light, shadow, movement, shimmering water. You know what we did? We wrote poems. I mean, it's, it, you really understand when you get there, but this love of creation referring to God and to Christ as the lord of the elements was a big part of that a second thing that was always part of their spirituality was love of learning and the irish monks began copying manuscripts love of learning one of the reasons is they were never affected by the paganism of the mediterranean world so stories about zeus or apollo didn't they were never Faith statements to them. Does that make sense? So they would read those and it was no real threat to them. So they would copy these manuscripts and really had a great love of learning. And so much of this comes from Patrick. They were always missionary. Some of these guys, you think they're crazy, they go out in a boat without sails, without oars, wherever the water will take us. Some of them ended up floating up to Iceland and lived in these little caves where they lived on fish and things like that up in Iceland. But this missionary spirit, this desire to be a pilgrim for Christ, a peregrini Christi, to explore the unknown. Brendan the Navigator is one of the great examples of that. Another great thing, in addition to being missionary, there's also sort of a very funny love of silence and solitude. The eremitical life to be a hermit. Someone like St. Kevin of Glendalough, who in Lent opened his arms in prayer and a bird nested in his hand and he helped held the hand like that for all of Lent till the bird hatched. I mean, that's sort of an Irish crazy Francis, you know. <laughs> but this love of solitude, love of silence, very important to them. Also, they have a very interesting concept of time. They believe that in the present moment, the past is present. And the seedbeds of the future are also found there. It's a very Christian view, but each moment of time is seen in all of its fullness. It's not like the past is distant. Does that make sense to you? It's like in every present moment, the past is fully there, and the seeds of the future is also there. So it's a very Christian sense of time, sort of this longing for eternity to enter into time was a very big thing for them. Another thing, a deep appreciation of ordinary life. You read the lives of the Saints, milking a cow. You know, Bridget giving apples to the poor. Little things, sweeping the house. Stirring the fire before retiring for bed. You invoke the Trinity, you know. Christ at the head with the Father and the Spirit as you turn the turf. All of these type of things. Every aspect of ordinary life. I got a little tiny book translated from the Gaelic. I think it was printed like in 1868. And it's just prayers before going to bed. Prayers for putting your slippers on. Prayers for going out to milk the cow. Prayers for stacking the hay. It's just totally awesome. Prayers for everything. And you could tell these were just prayers that people would just say spontaneously. Someone had the sense finally to put them down in a book. But you see this love of ordinary life. Also spiritual ties, soul friends. I already talked about the anamkara, that soul friendship that everybody should have a special friend with whom they can talk to about their spiritual life and about their prayer life. Uh, very important to them. Then, of course, in addition to this, love of asceticism, Uh, That's one of the problems I had with that book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, but that's another talk. Uh, The Celts were very ascetical and embraced penance. Some of them would appear very severe to us, but they thought that was a great way to free the body and be united with Christ. If Christ fasted 40 days, we should fast too. And so a love of asceticism. Another thing that's really amazing, a big influence that Irish spirituality had on Western spirituality, is the practice of private auricular confession. That you, you know, in the old days, you would go to the priest and you'd have to do public penance. The Irish, you would go to the monastery, you would go see the priest and you would go privately and your penance would be given to you privately. When the Irish monks traveled to Europe, they brought that practice. And as a matter of fact, if you look in the catechism of the Catholic church, it actually acknowledges that fact that the Irish, it's number 1447 in the Catholic Catechism that talks about the Irish penitentials and the practice of regular confessions of devotion. That was a big part. Also, intense devotion to the Eucharist. Uh, and This is something to understand Irish history, the intensity of that devotion when the mass became outlawed. To attend mass was a capital offense, and you had the mass stones. One of the most moving things on our recent trip is we found a mass stone in a remote Glen in Donegal, and we had two priests traveling with us, Father Kevin Walsh. And Father from here in Arlington and Father Miles Walsh. And the two of them said Mass at a Mass Rock where two priests had been killed in the penal times. And we're just kneeling out there in in this remote glen. And, you know, I've been to Mass in St. Peter's, and that's really beautiful. But one of the most beautiful experiences I ever had was kneeling in a remote glen at a Mass Rock where priests were killed, recognizing that our forefathers in the faith went to Mass, and it meant you might lose your life going to Mass. We take so much for granted. It was so good for the Christendom kids to be able to see that because, you know, we have mass all the time. It's so easy. It's so accessible. But if the chips were really down, if it meant you lose your job, you don't get promoted, or you might even get killed, would we go? It's a good question. They did. And it was very, very impressive. The last thing I'll mention in terms of Irish spirituality, an intense love for Rome. Intense devotion to the person of the Holy Father, has always been characteristic of the Irish church. Hopefully that'll give you a little bit of a background. I just got the five minutes, so let's talk about war. All right. <laughs> All right. But it's good that we have the background of Patrick and understand these elements in Irish spirituality to understand. Now... A couple things I'm going to give you just in the way of background tonight, if we can just give background on the Nine Years' War that will prepare us for the next lecture, we we'll actually go into it. Now the Nine Years' War took place during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, known to most historians as Good Queen Bess. You saw the recent film, Elizabeth? All right, anyway. Communication between Tudor England and Gaelic Ireland was frequent but often hampered by very severe prejudices flourished on both sides of the Irish Sea. Neither country appreciated the culture of the other country, and this brooding cloud of ignorance lingered throughout the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. There are a number of Tudor adventurers who went to Ireland. Everyone's heard of Sir Walter Raleigh, right? The tobacco guy. Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen, they all went over to Ireland. Richard Bingham, the Earls of Essex. You ever see Elizabeth in Essex with Betty Davis? Talk about caricature. Essex is Errol Flynn and he's surrounded by O'Neill during the war and O'Neill comes out in a rusty helmet, looks like he's half drunk. He says, sure, you're surrounded by, you may as well give up now. I mean, it's a classic sort of stereotype uh, produced by Hollywood. Where, as a matter of fact, he was an incredibly intelligent brilliant military commander, as we will see next week. But the reason why there was all this Tudor propaganda and scorn is many of these men lost their lives, lost their fortunes, and were very embittered. But behind these impenetrable Irish forests, shimmering glens, and Ireland back at this time was densely wooded, and there were only five major roads in the country. It was very difficult for them to realize that there was a civilization as valid and cultured and intricate as their own. Most of the Elizabethan ventures, when they speak of the Irish, call them vermin, savages, beasts, felons, wild hares, and they should either be rooted out or forcibly civilized. And that's what they're going to try to do. And this is going to cause a lot of problems. One of the things that they will try to do in the Tudor propaganda is portray the Irish as un-Christian. They're not really Christian. And that had to be done in order to justify some of the things that were done uh, in the country at that time. Fortunately, not all the Tudor writers reacted so negatively. We have descriptions from Father Good and Sir John Harrington talking about the people that they met there, and there's a certain amount of sympathy. Edmund Campion, the great Jesuit martyr, lived in Dublin and he came to know the Irish fairly well, and he actually wrote a history of Ireland, had great respect for the Middle Ages in Ireland, and this is how he described the people. The people are thus inclined, see what you think. Religious, frank, amorous, ireful, sufferable of pains infinite, very glorious, many sorcerers, excellent horsemen delighted with wars, great alms givers, passing in hospitality. But of course he was English. The looter sort, both clerics and laymen, are sensual and loose to lechery above measure. The same, being virtuously bred up and reformed, are such mirrors of holiness and austerity that other nations retain but a show or shadow of devotion in comparison to them. Abstinence and fasting is to them a familiar kind of chastisement. They are sharp-witted, lovers of learning, capable of any study whereunto they bend themselves, constant in travel, adventurous, intractable, kind-hearted, secret in displeasure. Now, that's a pretty balanced assessment, I would think, of a people. Whereas others will say... You can see the nature and disposition of this wicked, effronated barbarous, and unfaithful nation who are wicked in a perverse generation, constant always in are ther- inconstant, faithful in that they are always unfaithful. All right, very difficult. There are other descriptions. Some Italians and Spaniards who traveled to Ireland in the 16th century left very interesting accounts of the people, what they found, their customs, their practices. A number of them are mentioned in my book if you'd like to take a look at that. One of the things that really bothered the Elizabethans all, very much so, was the lack of national unity, the lack of national unity. Ireland never developed a strong centralized monarchy. The high kings were mostly figureheads. Uh, There was a cultural unity. The bards would sing of Roisin Dove, My Dark Rosaline. And so with the harpers and the poets, etc. And there was a definite cultural unity of language, religious faith, tradition, and custom. But local autonomy prevailed in Ireland over a policy of centralization. Just like with the ancient Greeks, you know, you could never get the Greeks together. It was Athens against Sparta, against Corinth, you know, the Peloponnesian Wars, the Italians. I mean, Italy is a very recent phenomenon, right? 1870. You were, if you were a Florentine, you were not a Roman. And the Florentines, in referring to the Romans, the S P Q R says, "sono porci questi romani." Never mind. All right. But the Romans would respond, "You know better, a corpse in the house than a Florentine at the door." I mean, you were a Venetian, you were a Florentine, you were a Paduan, you were a Neapolitan, you were a Sicilian. I mean, the same type of thing, that love of autonomy. And thank goodness the Italians had it because we have so many varieties of pasta in those great kitchens of Italy <laughs> that we all benefit from. But even when the Anglo-Normans invade Ireland, what they do, big mistake, they marry Irish girls. Hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. What kind of lullabies are they going to sing to the little boy? Ma kushna, ma kushna. That's right. So they begin to learn Gaelic, they learn Irish, they learn the poetry. and so eventually it gets so bad that the Anglo-Normans become the Anglo-Irish, and they become more Irish than the Irish themselves. And it's going to cause a lot of problems for the English government. But that love of local autonomy and the clan politics oftentimes crippled Irish efforts to achieve independence. And it was precisely that weakness that the Catholic Confederacy that eventually will be established by Red Hugh O'Donnell and Hugh O'Neill and Hugh McGuire, the three Hughes, they're all Hughes, Hugh, Hugh, and Hugh, they will come together and established this confederacy that will lead eventually to the Nine Years' War, from 1594 to 1602. It was a war of Gaelic independence, but what's even more important, it was a war to defend the Roman Catholic faith. Because what was happening in Ireland at that time, England was trying to force the Irish into their national apostasy. And so it was Red Hugh and Hugh O'Neill who were the first ones to link Irish nationalism to the Catholic faith, thereby strengthening both. And the war really needs to be studied, not only because of its military significance, the significance it has on the continent, but this was the war that finally determined where the Irish people said, we are not going to become Protestant, we are not going to become English, we are a Catholic people. And then you're going to have nearly five centuries of horrific persecution, hunting down priests, martyring of the primate like St. Oliver Plunkett, who was a totally innocent man, arrested, dragged, and trumped up charges to London, dragged through the streets, taken to Tyburn, and then hanged, drawn, and quartered. Wonderful man, dies forgiving his enemies, proclaiming his innocence. And many others like that. All martyrs of the faith. But this is a time when we need to take a look at this war. And William Cecil, do you know who William Cecil is? Queen Elizabeth's chief's counselor. He wrote a book called A Device for the Alteration of Religion. How we're going to get them to change their religion. And in this he says, the Pope, all that he may, will be incensed, but this will go no further than excommunication, interdicts, and intrigues with foreign princes. Although, he says, by reason of the clergy so addicted to Rome, The papal hostility will mean trouble in Ireland. So even Cecil recognized, we may be able to pull this off in England, but going against the Pope is going to cause real trouble in Ireland because the clergy is so addicted. And as the clergy, so the people. Now, why haven't more people heard about this war? The reason is because people have been taught in the English national literary tradition, which has built up what Hilaire Belloc called the Elizabethan myth. All right, that Elizabeth was this great queen. Bloody Mary, her sister, was just a horrible person. Just killed Elizabeth killed far more people than Mary did, far more people. But you don't hear about it. She killed Jesuits, she killed priests, bishops, etc. It was a horrible time. It was a horrible time. All the principal historical figures were involved in this Philip II of Spain, Philip III, all of the principal popes Gregory XIV, Clement VIII, Paul V, uh, Macdonald of the Islands, James VI of Scotland, Henry IV of France, all of them were involved in this war. And for ten years, These heroic clansmen are going to stand up against the might of England. They're going to send army after army after army. But whenever it came time to negotiate, the first thing they said was, the free exercise of the Holy Roman Catholic apostolic faith. That's what they demanded. They didn't demand that everyone become Catholic. They asked for religious tolerance. Just don't interfere that the Roman Catholic apostolic faith can be practiced here in Ireland. So what I'd like to do with you next week, if you'd like to come back for some more, I'd like to trace with you the basic outlines of the war that ends up in the very moving, it's an Irish story, not an American story, I'm sorry. It ends up in the very moving story of what the English call the flight of the earls, what the Irish should call in the original Gaelic, the torras to Rome, the path to Rome or the pilgrimage to Rome. But that's a story for another evening. So on that cheery thought, thank you so much for your attention. Please appreciate it.
0: This is about St. Patrick. What was his first language?
2: We don't know. It certainly was not Latin. If he came from a Celtic, Celtic land, which he probably, it would have been some form of Celtic, whether it was Irish, probably Welsh, if he was from that border area. It would have been a Celtic language. It's a very good question.
0: Dr. O'Donnell, would you go over for me what I thought I heard you say about the fact of St. Brendan's voyage reaching as far as America having been
2: demonstrated? Certainly. Well, one of the best things you do, National Geographic actually sponsored a man by the name of Tim Severin called The Brendan Voyage, and most libraries have the book. You can also get the DVD now and watch that. Uh, but he showed, he reconstructed the craft exactly the way it was done, It's about 36 foot. It's now saved. You can see it in, uh, in Ireland, it's preserved in a little spot there. But he showed that it was possible to sail the Atlantic. But what he did is a lot of the things that were described in the Navigatio Brendi, that was the name of the, the, the Latin manuscript, he was able to identify some of the birds that he talked about, the islands and things like that, but he showed that he was capable of, in that craft, sailing to Newfoundland. So that was one part of it. The other thing was the stone in West Virginia. Now, I don't remember the name of the national park, but if you called probably the West Virginia Board of Tourism, they would tell you. Um, but it's about a four-and-a-half-hour drive, but then you have to really hike in to see it. But it has an augum script. And uh, this has caused a lot of controversy, because there was some thought that he might have got down as far south as Florida, but coming inland into West Virginia is really unheard of. But the Ogham script was translated, and it says, on this day the Virgin was born, and on December 25th, as the sun rises over the mountain, it shines on the Ogham, as and it moves. It illuminates the entire script. It's rather amazing. So. Well, I, I think we'll still have to wait to see for this to get greater publicity, but I think it was actually discovered and translated back in the 80s. It just hasn't been that well-known. You're talking about the guy Years' Wars being with Elizabeth I. Wasn't there a war with Oliver Cromwell, or did that come later? That's later. Oh, okay. There's always wars. All right. I mean, ever since, see, part of the problem, I'll get into this next week, you had a Norman conquest in England, you never had a Norman conquest in Ireland. When the Normans invaded in 1169, they conquered portions of the island, but never the whole island. Large parts of Ireland were never touched, remained independent under the Gaelic chieftains. And then a number of the Normans uh, became increasingly Irish, And when you had the time of the Protestant separation with Henry VIII, the Irish Parliament did not support it. And Henry VIII had to kick out the bishops who were present there and had sort of a rump thing that sort of passed it through, but it was never accepted. And Protestantism appeared in Ireland as a very violent force because the suppression of the monasteries, it hurt England tremendously, but in Ireland that was the that, those were the bastions of civilization when those monasteries were suppressed altars smashed statues to face the people said what is going on and then eventually it led to a series of rebellions the first real significant rebellion was the desmond rebellion which took place in the late 1570s but then eventually that was suppressed but then when eventually the plantations began when they began to bring over Protestant settlers, because they said the people are not going to convert. That's when they said, "Look, it, our land is going to go, our faith is going to go. We have to unite and make a resolute stand." And that's what that war was about. Cromwell will come after yet another rebellion in the 1640s. I'm using putting rebellion in quotes with the Catholic Confederation of Kilkenny. But what's really interesting in Irish tradition, whenever the Catholics have power and come to power politically, they never impose Catholicism. All they ask for is freedom of religion, the free exercise of the Catholic faith. And that is an amazing thing. Of course, you know, 96% of the people were Catholic, so, you know. <laughs> but still, that's rather remarkable. Doctor,
1: I noticed that this decade is roughly the time that Shakespeare wrote most of his plays. I was wondering if this war showed up in any of his plays.
2: Yes, there is a reference, I think, in Henry V, uh, to about when our good Lord, coming back from Ireland, shall bring him uh, rebellion broached upon his sword. seemed to have been written in reference to the Earl of Essex, who was sent over by Queen Elizabeth to do that. There are some references, and occasionally Shakespeare does go into and talk about Irish affairs, but not, not a lot. It's not something that you would find. Because he wrote, for the most part, earlier, this war really took place at the very end of her reign. As a matter of fact, Elizabeth does not live to see the end of the war. So, uh, And there was horrible inflation, fear of Spain, and things like that. And also, Elizabeth's death was a very difficult thing to read about, even for English historians. She had a horrible death. Uh, haunted by nightmares and, and things like that. She refused to go to bed and remained sitting in the chair, almost staring death down in the face. I, I mention it in the book.
0: I'm not sure that there are these statistics, but um, you know, this rapid expansion of the mona- monastic life in Ireland, what percentage of the men were in monasteries, and was there also? an expansion of women's Absolutely. monasteries, and does anyone know what these statistics
2: That's a, That's a very good question, thank you for asking that. Um, we don't know numbers, Patrick in his confession says he cannot begin to count the number who made monastic profession. That's himself, but with other bishops, so we know that there were literally thousands, like at Clonmacnoise, the number of students studying there were numbered at 3,000. But obviously, It wasn't everybody. But there are certain times in the history of the church where you have a very high percentage pursue monastic life. For example, the age of the Desert Fathers. People would flock out to Anthony in the desert, and there was a very high level of Christian morality. I think part of the problem is recognizing these people fell passionately in love with Christ, and one of the finest ways to manifest that is through embracing the religious life and the celibate calling. So we don't We don't really know the numbers, but if you look at the number of monasteries and how many of them were thriving and how many went overseas, it was a very large number. The primary female religious, of course, was St. Bridget, who is known as the Mary of the Gael. And she had a huge convent in Kildare called Kildare, Kildare, the the Church of the Oak. Uh, And she traveled around in a chariot all over Ireland establishing a community of women. And women and men were very much sort of equal in Celtic society and culture. For example, a woman, when she would marry, would bring her dowry, but her dowry remained with her. It belonged to her, and there was a real sense of partnership. Women have played a huge role in Irish history. And even it is said that when St. Mel was receiving profession. He accidentally read the wrong part in the book and made Bridget a bishop, and I know that didn't take. But, but anyway, she always had the abatial staff and everything and was a remarkable woman. And yes, there were women who cooperated with a very vibrant faith all throughout the church. I didn't have time to go in. The most of the time, they would wear simple, woolen habit, very coarse, sort of white wool with, you know, with a little cincture and a little hood. and But religious life was very simple, very primitive, very much like you would have had in the early Egyptian monasteries. Later, when the European uh, communities begin to come at the Great Reformation in the 12th and 13th century, they loved the Franciscans and Dominicans because of their poverty. It reminded them of their own Irish monks. And uh, I think between... Uh, 1435 and 1535, there were like 90 Franciscan and Dominican houses established by Gaelic princes throughout Ireland to show you how big the Franciscan and Dominican revival was in Ireland. It was a flourishing church on the eve of the, the Protestant revolt. But there were men and women both involved in that.
1: Was there any con-
2: connection between Egyptian monasticism and Celtic monasticism? This is something, uh, yes, this is something that scholars are really probing now because the design of the monastery, the love of the asceticism, was a big factor. Part of that may be due to the fact that Athanasius's work, his Vita San Antonio, was something that was copied and very much distributed uh, throughout Ireland. A lot of the Irish monks also were influenced by St. David in Wales. And there is definite evidence that you had Greek monks, uh, Latin monks, and even some Egyptian monks that traveled to Ireland. As a matter of fact, in one of the remote areas, the Aran Islands where St. Enda established his monastery, yeah. there was a graveyard where seven Greeks are buried and the inscriptions are all in Greek. So we know that there were Greek monks that went there. There were some Egyptian monks that went there how much of it was an actual connection. The Irish themselves viewed the Milesians came from Spain, but those Celts, they said, according to the old legend, came from Scotta, who was an Egyptian queen, so there probably would have been some affinity with Egyptian sources. But I think a lot of it would have been the early Desert Fathers that they would have read with great enthusiasm, especially the love of the Arimatical life. So I think that probably through their reading and the desire to emulate that was probably the main driving force. But certainly there would have been some, but more research has to be done in that area.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Adorno.
0: Pray for us.